0: You're listening to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast on the Medics Academy Network.
1: This podcast is brought to you in association with BHA Medical. BHA Medical source, supply, implement and innovate medical technology solutions across the globe. BHA provide market-leading services in COVID-19 testing kits, medical products, smart technology and consultancy. One of the most recent devices they sell is the D-Heart. D-Heart is the first smartphone ECG device that's simple to use, clinically reliable, portable, and affordable. It allows anyone to perform a hospital-level ECG in total autonomy and to send the results to a 24-7 telecardiography service or to your trusted doctor. So the app guides you to perform a professional ECG, it also has a Bluetooth ECG streaming in real time, it's got medical grade ECG technology, so 12 to 60 seconds of recording, you can charge the device directly in the case, and the sleek design and manufacturing. So please see the show notes for further information. Welcome back to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast with myself, phone Walker. In this episode, I'm looking at the COPD pathway with Johnny Will and Tom Farden. So what I want to do is just examine this new pathway which is emerging in Scotland that's been designed to specialise treatment and expedite specialist care in this cohort of patients. So NHS data shows that in 2020 and 2021, approximately 1.7 million people in England have been diagnosed with COPD, which is around 1.9% of the whole population. In terms of diagnosed cases, this makes COPD the second most common lung disease in the UK after asthma. Around 2% of the whole population, 4.5% of people over age 40, live with diagnosed COPD. So the number of people who have ever had the diagnosis of COPD has increased by 27% in the last decade. From under 1,600 to nearly 2,000 per 100,000 people. So, what I wanted to do in this conversation is do a deep dive into why this COPD pathway has been formed, and also take a deep dive into COPD from a pathology perspective and indeed what the endpoints of the pathway might serve. We're also going to look at some of the improvements uh, to the current service. We'll look at some of the tiers the patient pathway serves. We'll look at what happens to life-threatening COPD patients. We also look at um, what the physiological tolerance of COPD patients are. We also look at what key clinicians and specialisms have been brought together to uh, to formulate this pathway. And um, then we look at what the future holds. And then we get some take home messages from Tom and indeed from Johnny. So I'm going to let Johnny introduce himself first, and then we'll migrate over to Tom
0: first of all, thank you for having me. Uh, I'm a paramedic by background. I've uh, been trained as a specialist paramedic. I actually work with London Ambulance Service and then Scottish Ambulance Service. I've um, also worked in hospital as, as an emergency care paramedic as well. I've um, spent the last two years as a clinical effectiveness lead with the Scottish Ambulance Service uh, and actually very recently just become a National Improvement Advisor for uh, NHS Scotland.
1: Fantastic, fantastic. And Tom, yourself?
2: Yeah, thanks for having me on. I'm a respiratory consultant in NHS Tayside with a a specialist interest in airways disease, uh, spanning asthma, COPD and bronchiectasis. Um, I'm the clinical lead for our managed clinical network in Tayside and the chair of the National Advisory Group for Respiratory Medicine. And I do some work with Scottish Government to i was the lead for the respiratory care action plan for scotland which does include a a big chunk of work on on copd and now I, i lead up the scottish respiratory advisory committee work to to implement the the changes the commitments that were made in the in the respiratory care action plan
1: fantastic so tom could i just maybe just start with um What's happening with these patients from a sort of a, a physiological perspective over time, and when we see these patients, how they've maybe adapted their pathology to to what we see when when they call nine nine nine?
2: It's a great question, and um, COPD is an umbrella term, as you know, for a range of pathophysiological processes. That when I was back medical school, it was straightforwardly. Chronic bronchitis or emphysema, and that was that was it. And, and now we understand the COPD to be a multi-system disorder which has a multiple different pathogenicities. Where some neutrophil driven, majority of it's neutrophil driven. Some we recognize as eosinophil driven. Um, we see the crossover between a more hyperreactive airways, asthma type picture, often labelled ACOs, asthma COPD overlap syndrome, and then on the other side, a, a, an overlap from, from emphysema into fibrosis. Recently published guidelines on what that actually means, and and what and uh, how we should treat people with this that crossover, and then the bronchiectatic picture of which probably is what we call chronic bronchitis. Of course, COPD doesn't start out of the blue; it's a long-term process that's developed with uh, because of um, exposure to noxious toxins. Um, smoking being by far the most um, important and prevalent risk factor for developing COPD, and. The lungs have a huge amount of redundancy in them. We can cope with a huge amount of loss of lung function before we really realize. And that that is one of the big challenges we face is that most people only present once they've lost 40, 50% of their FV1 and then start to become symptomatic. So then, and that's at one end. And then the progression through, um, through worsening disease all the way to the CPD patient that you have in your head when you conjure up that image of, a more more elderly patient who's frail, very breathless, limited in their exercise capacity, um, um, and maybe uh, has type 2 respiratory failure, maybe may require oxygen for their type 1 respiratory failure, the frequent exacerbators, the patients who are admitted to hospital frequently, 30% of the acute take is respiratory and Half of that in most centres will be COPD patients.
1: Could you just unpack, Johnny, for us what's happening when this patient presents to the ambulance service? Because there's clearly been a circuit breaker in in maybe their tolerance or indeed their capacity to deal with 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 their illness. Could you maybe just unpack what's um, what, what what what's going on for these patients when they when they call nine nine nine?
0: Yeah, for sure, and, and in some ways, Tom. We best to answer some of the, the pathophysiology around what's happening obviously in the ambience we called often to people that are having true exacerbations of COPD where they're you know having difficulty in breathing whether it be infective uh, exacerbation or not but actually more and more we see with this is it's a long-term condition and when you have a long-term condition that often is often associated with mental health problems as well so particularly anxiety and depression uh, and you know we know A modern technique for dealing with those is is breath work, right? To do some breathing techniques to help control your anxiety. But if you're anxious about your breathing because your long-term condition is a breathing problem, it's no wonder then that people become breathless and then don't often understand whether they are genuinely in exacerbation or whether they're just anxious, and they will go on often to become very frequent callers to us, so high-intensity high, high intensity users. Um, and some of them will call us uh, on a monthly, weekly, or even daily basis. And clearly, that's not true exacerbation. So... For us, there's a really important piece that we split between that acute presentation that has a real medical need that absolutely needs to go off and, you know, under blue light conditions to hospital um, for for resuscitation. Uh, And those patients that just need some better coping techniques, need a little bit of reassurance, um, or maybe they have an urgent care need. So it might be an early stage in an exacerbation that could be dealt with at home um, and doesn't need to go into the hospital. And more and more, I think that's where the ambulance service is sitting, uh, is dealing with those kind of sub-acute presentations
1: so looking at the acute presentations before we migrate to the subacute, because i think this pathway more caters for the subacute patient um but just looking at those acute patients uh, tom and you know migrating to the end of their physiological reserves um you know haven't got the tolerance for for, for profound hypoxia You've, you know they're really sitting on the edge of the curve of the um of the Bur- burr curve um could you just maybe speak to again what's going on pathophysiologically for these patients whereby they're reaching the end of their auto peep of their own sort of internal coping mechanisms and what's happening when when you, we we get to these kind of patients within the care environment
2: what we see not uncommonly is that patients at the at that end of with severe disease when they're at home coping, they're barely coping. And we recognise this, you know, you're fit for home, can manage at home, but it's barely. And where we used to believe that that asthma was a variable disease with day-to-day variation in symptoms and peak flow changes, and that COPD was a flat curve, you're the same every day, that's one of the hallmarks, it's really not true. And we all have good days and bad days, and for COPD, that is certainly true. And as you reach the end of your disease process, the the reserve falls off and I think that's one of the things we have to really think about is what is a patient's reserve and it's what's the reserve to be able to cope with that day-to-day fluctuation in, in symptoms and day-to-day change in infl- inflammation change today, change in um, in their airway caliber changed just change in, in their physical ability to cope and and these are frail patients often um, and you know, what do we do to them when they come in? You know, we correct hypoxia where appropriate. Um, we can detect type 2 respiratory failure and, uh, and they're able to provide non-invasive ventilation when required. Um, but in terms of the treatment, you know, we have antibiotics when appropriate, steroids when needed, um, and supportive measures. It's often case it is that it's about time. It's about normalising physiology best we can and allowing that variation to come back again. Now, the, the, Hospital is the right place for them. They they have no reserve. They need to come in and we need to look after them. Um, One of the challenges we face in terms of a research base is that many of our outcomes are time-to-first exacerbation or exacerbation frequency. And how we define an exacerbation is very vague. The Antoniusson criteria are 20 years old and based on on, on changes which which, which are, are pretty vague. They're not very specific. And we haven't got any further than that. We don't have any, we don't have a troponin for, for, for the lungs, you know, and being in hospital because your social support isn't enough, because your COPD is worse today than it was last week or even yesterday, is not a failure of treatment and it's, it is it is an inevitability of a chronic disease which has a, has a fluctuating baseline. Um, so w- what I do appreciate very much is that the the number of patients we see is much smaller than the number of patients that will and you and your team see because an awful lot of work is done at that in in the community that interface between patients and emergency care emergency services to be able to to manage patients who are as you described it subacutely unwell um and have other problems so that's the real great work that wills done, uh, that uh, Johnny's been doing
1: so let's just dig into to to the subacute population really Johnny. So just looking at um at this pathway. Um could you maybe just speak to who because you're right it's such a heterogeneous caseload. You've got you've got this subacute population that, that 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 just maybe haven't got the social support and indeed just just actually need um breath work or indeed um incremental adjustments versus as as tom was just saying you know the, the the real florid um end case um copd which has got no tolerance no reserve can't even make it to the bathroom without without being profoundly out of breath um could you maybe speak to this pathway? Why why it's been brought into existence and and what what, ser- what purpose it it serves?
0: Yeah, of course. The first thing to say is actually I you know remember when I was out on the road far more than this, and particularly in my time back down in London as an early paramedic, I don't remember worse deaths than those really kind of. Hypoxic patients that are so agitated that they won't even agree to get on the chair to you. You know you can't get them onto the bed because they never want to lie down flat. And you're just what you're, you know, you're desperately trying to help them. And, and, and often they're going off in front of you. You know what's happening, but they're fighting you because of the hypoxia, you know? And it's just a horrible thing to watch. And that that really sat with me, that that acute side of it. And then I moved into hospital and suddenly I had these amazing things where I had non-invasive ventilation, and I could put people on CPAP and BIPAP. And take arterial blood gases and very quickly take people that looked peri-arrest when we first picked them up or when they were first brought into the hospital to half an hour later being sound asleep quite comfortable because you know the machine had done its job and um it had, you know as Tom was talking about in terms of their capacity it had done that bit of work for them allowed them to have a bit of a rest and they're recovering and that's fine and then when we're out in the community you go to COPD patients and it almost it was almost a bit of a red mist for me in the background I'm on my way to a COPD patient I know how this can turn out it's going to be terrible and you know, nine times out of 10 or more, you go there and actually it's that same COPD patient that you've seen hundreds of times. And actually they're not that bad. And you take their stats, you give them a little bit of reassurance and actually they're fine. The problem with that is, and it's a big traditional cultural issue that we've got with ambulance services. It was the same in London as it is in Scotland. And I'm sure it is across the world. Historically, we picked patients up and we took them to hospital. And hospital was the safe place where everything can be done, there's no risk to me as a clinician, there's no risk to the service, so I'll take them into hospital. Hospital is a safe place, it's the gold standard, if you like. But for these patients, you know, as Tom said, quite often they're older, they're frail patients, and actually it's not that there's no risk at hospital, I see there's quite a lot of risk in hospital. So not only could they have a fall and break a hip or pick up a hospital-acquired infection, but even if everything goes well, there's no unintended consequences, medication errors, all that sort of stuff, we're looking at what, a 5% reduction in functional strength and independence per night spent in hospital. And it compounds over the space of a week. So if we pick somebody up and for our personal liability, we're uncomfortable leaving them at home, we take them to hospital. The reality is we might actually be doing some harm in that subacute setting. Now this is not emergencies, you know, as Tom said, for, for emergencies, people need to go to a hospital. They need that, you need BiPAP and everything else to turn them around. But for a lot of people we're potentially doing harm taking them to hospital. Again, for me as a clinician out in the road, I don't want to take that responsibility myself. I'm leaving somebody at home. They've got COPD. They could have an exacerbation at any time. And if if I'm the last person that's seen them, you know, that feels very risky as a clinician. Um, So for me, what we wanted to do really was give our clinicians an option, a follow-up to their episode of care. Because it is ambulances very much. We go up, we do our job, we take them to hospital, we leave them at home. We close that case, if you like, and we move on to the next one. Whereas the GP or a district nurse or a community respiratory team, they can schedule in an appointment the next day or a phone call or bring them back into their clinic later on that week. And so that was the bit that we're trying to do is for for these patients, it's what they want. We spent a lot of time engaging with patients, and it's, it's definitely what they want from our clinicians. It's that reassurance that someone's following up the care. And and ultimately, we're not doing any harm to the patient by inappropriately taking them to hospital. And I suppose that's that's the where the pathway came from, although probably driven more by performance. So the numbers you said at the start, you know, it's something that's really similar. Um, World Health Organization predict that COPD will be the third biggest cause of death and disability globally by 2030. Um, it's about 120, 130,000 bed cases uh, cases a year in Scotland. They stay for four to eight days, which has a huge impact on the system. Um, I think that, I mean, the last estimate of money was it's about £2.4 billion to the cost of the UK economy. So it's huge. And from a SAS perspective, it's about 10% of our entire workload is respiratory. And, you know, 10% doesn't sound a lot, but when you think major trauma is 1%, cardiac arrest is 1.5%. If we add that to heart attacks, strokes, everything that we blew like to hospital, it amounts to 10% of our workload. So really this respiratory piece is as big as all of the emergency work that we do. And so um, Dr. Jim Ward, who's our medical director, had said, you know, what are the the biggest um, demand pieces around that, you know, around urgent care? Uh, and respiratory, it really sits second only to falls as uh, the second highest one that we've got. We see around 57,000 respiratory cases a year. And at that urgent care level, it's such a demand that it impedes our ability to get to the true emergencies. And so probably underlying all of this project is that it's it's making sure that we have enough capacity in the system to get to even COPD patients that really need this in that emergency and not get bogged down with that urgent care piece.
1: So to that point, um, Johnny, what, what endpoints do you hope to have achieved? Because in essence, in my mind, it, uh, it sounds like you we're bringing less patients to 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 clinicians like tom that are subacute in nature and maybe have got more acopia and or other kind of variable less uh, more subacute presentations uh, and and tom is therefore only really seeing the acute slash life threatening cases and the others are being sort of siphoned into uh, into into more of a, a respiratory nursing or community nursing um pathway is, would I be correct in saying that is, is 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 that is that where these patients are are ending up is it a same day appointment how, how, what what's the end point for the patient
0: yeah Do you know i think it's one of these things that we're starting to realize there's again there's very traditional models of what a paramedic is, what a doctor is, what a nurse is. And I think often it sits in a hierarchical structure and we think you know, consultants are right at the, the pinnacle and then you know, we've got healthcare professionals sitting at the bottom. But actually, if we think about patient care, everybody provides a different piece of the jigsaw. And actually for someone with a long-term condition like COPD, the day-to-day management, the, the lived experience is probably as important as the ITU, you know, staff that are dealing with them in their acute exacerbation. And so even third sector have a part to play in this because it's that making sure people have peer support, that they understand the, the sort of daily coping mechanisms that they can look to, the pulmonary rehab that keeps them in, in better health. And, and so for some of these patients, actually, a paramedic isn't the right person. Um, a respiratory consultant isn't the best placed person to have longer conversations, to help them build up their confidence at home, build the support system around them that they need. And so what we try to do with this is in that subacute setting, now don't get me wrong, some people might need to, we might need to bring the GP in and they get some antibiotics involved. And they might start rescue packs and prednisolone and all sorts of other things that they can bring to the table. But often what they need is referral back in to get support with the day-to-day living. And, and actually paramedics and consultants are our best place to provide that advice and to signpost into those care. So what we do in this situation is we pick someone up, we check them over, we make sure that they are not in that emergency situation, understand that they're urgent, and then we pass them on to the ongoing care experts for COPD, and that's the community respiratory nurses. They're, the, they're looking after their long-term care, and they can either escalate up if they believe that they're they're getting worse, or they can also pass it on to, to third sector and other people. And you know, so one of the things that's really beautiful about this, I love individual case studies. So there's there's a case of a patient um, in Tayside, it's local, that was referred to our community respiratory team. And in some ways, it's a it's a classic story: a slightly grumpy COPD patient that really didn't want to engage, were struggling a little bit. A member of family had called in, you know, um, Elliot uh, SAS to come and support them. They weren't particularly well. The paramedics weren't comfortable leaving them at home, but they they refused to go in and it was referred to the pathway. Community respiratory team came out and they realized that he was probably end of life at that stage, but had nothing in place. There was no anticipated care plans. There was no end of life care plan. Um, DNA CPR hadn't been discussed. There was no rescue packs involved. And so they started working really quickly to put all these things in place. So immediately there was a rescue pack from a COPD perspective, but there was also just in case box in case this became end of life care. They also noticed that some skin wasn't particularly intact, and they got a district nurse involved to do a bit of um, you know, skin care and also get a pressure relieving mattress. Uh, all this was put in place really rapidly, and actually, what happened was the patient died three weeks later, comfortable, with dignity, uh, at home, as they wanted to, by their wishes. And it, it's just for me, although you know we often think of p- good patient outcomes as being you know survival, but in this case, this patient died at home. Where he wanted to comfortably, and the alternative would have been spending three weeks, not ho- his last three weeks in the hospital, and it, that doesn't work for anyone. It doesn't work for the patient because it's not in their best interests, it's not their wishes. But for the system, that's you know three weeks of bed blocking and you know three weeks of care in hospital that, that wasn't required and wasn't actually the best care for the patient. And so everything from just helping somebody live well with their long term condition to ensuring they have a dignified end of life the hospital often isn't the best place and getting the community teams involved really enables much better level of care.
1: So Tom, from your perspective, how beneficial would this care pathway be from your work workload and/or indeed caseload? You know, having the having these kind of patients passed apart so that you can maybe truly focus on the the acute card array of 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 patients.
2: What Johnny is very eloquently put there is that we all have our place to place to um to to put into the care of 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 these patients. You know, we we all have our part to play. And um the traditional hierarchical structure as you described, Johnny, if you know doctors do one thing necessary there's such a much more crossover these days. But that being said, there are some things that only the doctors can do and only the hospital can do. And you know, we we want to be involved in the discussions about long-term care. We want to have anticipatory care planning meetings. We want to make sure that people have a good understanding about the chronicity of the disease and the outcome. But the, the truth is that particularly at the moment with the pressures that we face in acu- acute services, that we're very, very stretched with the acute team. Um, and finding the time to be able to do that is very challenging. And we're not all, I mean, we'll admit we're not always the best people to have those conversations not only do we not have the time but we don't necessarily have the best skills to do that. So we try to work with everyone in the in the in the team, everyone in that multidisciplinary team to say, well, let's we can start these discussions when you're in the hospital. Let's the next time this happens, is this where you want to be? Do you want to be back in L ward in this environment having the same sort of treatment in the same sort of way or is there another way? And and how can we get you into that stream rather than the stream you're in now which you don't want to be in? and and that we found that to be that's it's not a typical model and and there is sometimes some pushback of why you why have you not finished what you started but this is a journey and and you can't always get everything done in the 10 minutes i have on a ward round um or even two days or three days and and even if you sit down for an hour you're, you're offering patients life-changing options here the do i come to hospital do i not come to hospital is we may sit there and think, well, actually, the outcome may be very, not be very different. And in terms of risk and probability of outcome, they're very, very similar. But to a patient their family, the decision not to come to hospital is, is an epoch-making thing. It's a huge thing. So I think we have to be cognizant of that and give people time, but also help them on that journey to making those decisions, you know. This has been horrible for you. You've had NIV in the high-dependency unit. You really didn't like it. It was very unpleasant. You've squeaked through here. You had we had your family in two nights in a row because we didn't think you were going to make it. That was traumatic for everyone. You have made it through. Would you want to go through all that again? You did tell one of the nurses overnight that you thought this was your time and you were, you know, sanguine with that. So let's carry on that discussion. Let's not shy away from it. Um, I'm not saying we're doing it perfectly far from it, but I think we're having the discussions more frequently. And I know that there's that when johnny and the teams go out to see people they're looking at the notes they're looking at our shared documentation correspondence to say have these discussions been made have they been started where's the key information summary where's that got to because if i've started that conversation in clinic or on the on the ward, and johnny's out there the next week he can say well you spoke to tom and 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 what did you think about that have, now you're in this situation what do you think and it's not a failure to change the plan. It's that That's not what we're after here at all. If the anticipated care plan is don't come to hospital, if at the, in the crunch at three in the morning, when you're by yourself and you wake up and you can't breathe and you call the ambulance and Johnny goes and says, actually, we're going to take you in, that's not a failure of the plan. You But you, have, you had a plan and that's the important bit. And it allowed a, a platform for discussion where everyone's on the same terms and everyone knows is honest about it all. So the work that's been done has really helped us, really, really helped us. um, And that's qualitatively and quantitatively
1: and it's really powerful having these discussions whereby like you said there's a symbiosis with you know Johnny can see your notes he can he can understand the conversations which have, which have retrospectively been been had with the patient and um you can you can start to plan forwards as you say which is powerful uh, and you know not this reactive medicine but proactive proactively anticipate which is which is which is key johnny just to just to m- move towards yourself as as we're starting to come into land on the conversation what what are the numbers like for for pathways like this and the reason i ask this question is because uh, the appropriate care pathways i'm used to within the south of england takes time for paramedics to adjust and like like quite rightly as you were saying to become comfortable with decision making and um, leaving patients or indeed referring patients to other pathways outside of ED, um, although that seems to be fundamentally broken at the moment. Um, could, could you could you could you maybe speak to the numbers and and whether whether you're starting to see incremental growth in these in these in in the COPD pathway?
0: Yeah, what I will say is it has been it's really quiet, and what we're talking about is huge shifts in culture. And I think for any ambulance clinicians. Um, you know, for, for paramedics, this is definitely a very new way of thinking. When we set the pathways up, um, it tends to be really difficult. We have to work really hard to get people to engage with them, to feel comfortable using them. One of the things we've been really lucky with in Tayside that, that's starting to change these conversations and the trust between our sort of pre-hospital clinicians and hospital clinicians is for urgent care patients, we effectively call before we convey. So if it's an emergency, we'll pre-alert, we'll blue light in, we'll do what we've always done. And actually with emergencies, although it's, it's time critical, there's someone's life in jeopardy, it, you know, they're high pressurized situations, which makes them uncomfortable at times. They tend to be relatively straightforward. You turn up the patient, you kind of know what's wrong with them. You've got a package of care that you need to deliver and you need to expedite them to definitive care. It's pretty straightforward. When it comes to this urgent care piece, it can be really complex. And, and actually if all the knowledge you've got is you and your crewmate in the ambulance, it can be relatively limited because we're such generalists, I guess, as paramedics. We get given deep dives to stabilize somebody from adult, pediatric, elderly, mental health, surgical, medical, doesn't matter what it is, we've got to deal with it, right? Um, And when I moved into hospital, the the second big revelation I had around these pieces of work is even the consultants pick up the phone and speak to another specialty or another consultant. They phone a friend, they ask for help, they run things by peer groups. And actually, you've just got you know, the other paramedic or a technician or, or the student that you've got with you on your ambulance is kind of all you've got often. And and this call before you convey was brilliant. So our paramedics will pick somebody up uh, in their home who's got an exacerbation COPD or somewhere around there, maybe low level. And they can phone, speak to the consultant and say, look, I've got this patient. This is what I think. They can signboard board ideas with them. They can run through potentially what might happen in ED, what might happen in a ward. And between the patient, the clinician on scene and the senior clinician, or a specialist, if it's a community respiratory team, you can have a conversation and come up with the best plan. And that's really helpful. So not just with respiratory, but across the piece for urgent care um, in Tayside. And it's something that we're looking into all the health boards in Scotland. And um, we have a flow navigation center, we call it. And each one of them has a senior clinical decision maker. In terms of numbers, there's a bit of a, a magic number that seems to keep coming out. And it's when you get either a specialist or a senior clinician involved, you tend to stop about 30%. So, you know, the numbers are low. So in some of the uh, the projects that we set up, we're talking, you know, single numbers have come through very early tests to change. But in terms of percentage, it seems to always come back to this 30%. If you get to the next stage, the receiving hospital or the specialist team, they will tend to be able to give advice or an alternative to around 30% of the patients. And that's massive. If we can make marginal gains with COPD and diabetes and epilepsy and mental health and everything across the system, you then have the potential to strip out this 30% out of the system, gives us that capacity back to provide really good care for patients in the acute sites and for wards not to be, you know, full of patients that don't really need to be there. So direct answer to your question is the numbers are really low. Um, But I think it has the potential to make a huge difference.
1: So I'm going to ask this question to you both actually, and we'll start with Tom around sort of segmentation of, of, of medicine as we've seen it in, in, in the past five years or so, you know, we've got major trauma uh, patients going to major trauma centers. We've got stroke patients going to HASU's hyper-acute stroke units. Um, we've um, got um, heart attack patients going to heart attack centers, PCI centers um, and, and, and so Tom, we've got this fruition now of, you know, the COPD pathway where the hopefully the acute patients are going to yourself and um and the subacute patients maybe elsewhere within community teams. Do you see utility in segmenting? the domains even further sort of heart failure patients going to heart failure centers, sepsis patients going to sepsis centers. Do you see the utility in streamlining these patients away from ED to directly to the specialist?
2: Well, again, it's a, it's a great question. And here we have the, the balance between what the evidence gold standard best care would argue yeah we know if you've got pneumonia you will do better if you see a chest physician, and you'll get out of hospital sooner and you'll have fewer complications um, and your long-term outcome will be better and if you have heart failure you'll do better if you see a cardiologist that's absolutely right but the pragmatism and the reality of it all is that we simply don't have enough subspecialists to do that we don't have the infrastructure there is a big push for respiratory support units. I know that there's, they're quite complex down south in England and Wales. We don't have any up in Scotland. We're, we're trying to build a system where we do, where we have them. Respiratory support units are fantastic. You pull they're complex patients with complex needs, um, needing ventilated and making difficult decisions. You need to get the right people into the right place at the right time. And, and yes, you will do better. If you have NIV and an RSU, you will do better than if you get it on, on an acute medical unit or even a base respiratory unit. But but the, where's the where's the building? Where's the nurses? Where's the physios? Where's where's the doctors? Where's all of that? So in, in one hand, you have the evidence pushing us towards, yes, super specialized. As soon as you get to the door, where's your those, where's the streams? It fans out. The other side, the GMC and shape of training uh, in medicine pushes us towards generalism. And that, that, that is the direction of travel for me- for medicine with a small m, training is generalism first, specialization later. As a realization that we need front door staff who can deal with a range of things. Because how far do you push it? Do we say that Johnny is the respiratory paramedic and you you know, you know you phone up 999 nine, 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 and say for a respiratory problem say right, I'll get the respiratory paramedic into the respiratory hospital. You know, it's just not it's just not realistic. It may well be the best of care, but it's not realistic. So I would like to see respiratory support units pushed here in Scotland. I think that will be a big step forward. We have high dependency units. We have acute dialysis units, CCUs, HDUs, and RSUs, I think would be a very good step forward for us for improving the care of our respiratory patients. I think that by the same token, we must make sure that that uh, respiratory care is embedded in general medical training. Acute physicians have a good understanding of respiratory care um, because it's such a large part of the take.
1: And Johnny, to yourself.
0: Yeah, thank you for bringing me in. And I guess this really, it points more towards the new role that I'm involved with. Um, as I say, I haven't been kind of effective for urgent community and primary care, now stepping into um, urgent non-scheduled care um, with the Scottish Government as a national improvement advisor. This is the piece and it's 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 really difficult. Um, if I take it back to, to SAS, we know that about 10% of our workload is emergency. We know about 20% roughly will be see and treat and discharge without any further care. Around 30% of our work um, is straight transport. So it might be a GP that's admitted someone to a ward or into hospital transfer, but that leaves 40%. So, you know, it's not far off half of all of the work that they do is this urgent care piece. And I think part of what we need to do is define what urgent care is. Um, There's some loose terms that have been out there. For me, it's people that have got a a genuine health concern, um, but it doesn't have any immediately life-threatening elements to it. There's no emergency element to it. And that they need uh, an investigation and assessment or treatment the same day, you know, sort of within 24 hours. And so I think if we recognise urgent care patients, we can then have what Tom was talking about is that generalist. who can look at that patient in that slightly slower time frame than an emergency and say, actually, what is it that the patient really needs? Where best is that provided? Um, and, and what time scale is it needed? And then we can do something to schedule it at a time that's convenient to the system or protocolize some of it. So a lot of the sort of stuff we're looking at at the moment is, an know SX have been around for a little while um, down south, um, but in Scotland, we're bringing in our own version of it called RAC, it's very similar to an SX, where we can protocolize some work. for instance, uh, low-risk chest pain, where uh, an AMP, so an advanced nurse practitioner, can work up uh, a patient very rapidly, because we know that you know, 90% of the chest pain that presents actually isn't, isn't a cardiac origin, or they're certainly not having an MI. Um, they may end up with cardiology, but but for the majority of them, we need a troponin, we need to observe them for a period of time. It's almost a set piece that we can do. So having that SDEC, that urgent care generalists that can come and work up the majority of people, but in that same time rapidly find the ones that are really unwell that need to go to the specialist and move them on, it means that all the undifferentiated stuff in the ED um, will potentially get too faster. It gives our clinicians in that emergency setting a little bit more bandwidth to provide good care, we don't get to the situations where we're toileting people and feeding people and doing second rounds of medication in emergency departments and that, you know, the four hour emergency access standard, as I knew it, seemed a bit of an arbitrary figure So why we're we looking at this, but it is that barometer for how things are, how our demand and capacity is coping in the system. And the truth is most of the systems at the moment aren't coping very well. So I think if we recognize urgent care as being a big chunk of the problem, and then have general specialists, if you like, that can quickly whittle down those that would be better out in the community, better in hospital, get them to the right place. And then as fast as possible, let's get people back out to community, back home, whether it's hospital at home teams or OPAT services or community respiratory teams supporting them at home. Because ultimately we can't just build lots more uh, hospitals. We can't suddenly have a lot more beds and we definitely can't just create new clinicians. It takes a long time to build an experienced clinician. What we can do is be more efficient with what we've got. And so that's the model that we're looking at at the moment where we spend a lot more time triaging people um, rapidly and then getting them, wherever they've come into the system, the next step is the right step to the right care in the right place.
1: So as we come into land on the conversation, um, just I'd just like to get take-home messages from you both, really, starting with Tom. Just for for people and or ambulance services, NHS trusts or otherwise that are thinking of maybe looking at a copd pathway um could you maybe just speak to the utility or not even just the utility but 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 patient outcomes and potentially patient outcome data and how beneficial it might be from point of call to 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 as johnny was saying Back into the community um, and advantageous it might be to, to gather these individuals together. Tom, could I just get your perspective on take homes from anyone thinking of, of maybe piecing a pathway together?
2: I think anyone who's involved in CPD care and has been for the last decade or two uh, will look at their service and and, and worry. How are we going to cope and how, how do we manage with the increasing burden? Uh, and I, my encouragement is to, is to take that and say and, and do something about it. You know, is to, like everyone is thinking it and everyone's thinking it from, from the ambulance service through to and primary care, the front door in A- AE, um, the acute medical unit, us, palliative care, social, everyone's thinking so just get your head above the parapet and say, and and put your feelers out to ask those people to come in because everyone wants to do it. They're just waiting for the, for the go. And yet we're all very busy, but this is a big chunk of work. It's 30% of the acute take work. It's Johnny's describing, you know, it's a big, big chunk of, the, of, of their work. But in the middle of all, this is the patient. It's the poor patient who's got an ongoing terminal. Let, let's be honest about it. Um, in the majority of people, disease where we have very limited options in terms of you can't reverse the damage in CPD we can try to maximize what's there and by the time that people are frequently exacerbating we know that that is a trigger is a point at which we start to change our thought process towards palliative care and symptom management we are very poor at getting that across to the patient and keeping the patient the center of that discussion and I think if you can build a platform a framework where everyone's talking the same language we're all aiming for the same thing and it's not about how much money we're going to save in bed days here and there it's what's the quality of life for this patient how do we make that better how do we improve their journey you're all on that page the patient will know that you're on the same page and what will fall out of that is the improvements in in bed stays, the improvements in in cash. You have to to speculate to accumulate. You're going to have to put money into this. You have to invest in people. You have to invest in their time. You have to provide succession planning for specialist nurses, palliative care, SAS and the the paramedic service who are interested. Talk to the ED department. Put in the call handling systems. You've got to do all that. But if you keep the patient in the centre of this conversation, then everyone will work towards that. Because everyone will see a benefit from this, but the real benefit is for the patient.
1: And Johnny, just to yourself,
0: yeah. You know, a, a while back I was doing some transformational work in an ED in London. And it had really bad numbers, and it was going into special measures. And actually, they moved a group of paramedics into the ED department—never been done before—and. Uh, I mean, we've gone from I think being ranked fifth worst accident emergency in, in England to being kind of second top just behind St George's in London. That you know, we'd really changed in sort of eighteen months, and the leadership team that were involved around that would would have uh, matrons and managers come from all over the country, and they'd often ask questions of us as the clinicians and saying, you know, how specifically have you targeted the four hour emergency access standard or the, the friends and family numbers. Um, What have you done? And I kept saying to people, I don't know, I've just been looking after our staff and we've been looking after patients. And after a little while, it started to sink in that actually you can think as big as you want around this stuff, but ultimately it comes down to that. You need to look after your clinicians and you need to look after your patients and almost everything else takes care of itself. And and to Tom's point, there's such a, I mean, the care of of these long-term patients involves the patient, but actually even more importantly, the patient's family, because the patients say to us themselves that, they find the families are really good, or carers even, at two points. One, when they're starting to have a little bit of a nickel, a little bit of a cough, something's not quite right, they'll always pick up on it and they'll always push them away and say, I'm not interested. The other time they get involved is when there's an exacerbation and the patient themselves knows, no, I'm okay, I can cope with this, but the family panic and they just want them in the hospital. So having the conversation with the the patient's important, but also their family and the support network, it's really important that they're involved with it. But then it's primary care, it's health and social care partnerships, it's community respiratory teams, it's pulmonary rehab. We need to get away from siloed working and they all need to collaborate, recognize which part you play within the system, and then all work together at different times to provide the best care for the patient. And, the, you know, last, I think it was last year or the year before, uh, the chief medical officer for Scotland had... Um, a keynote speaker, uh, who was Victor Montori. I don't know if you, you've heard of him. Very charismatic gentleman from the Mayo Clinic. And, and he gave a fantastic talk, but ultimately, and i paraphrasing, but ultimately um, what he was saying was, it's not enough to treat patients. We also need to remember to care for people. And that's something that really sat with me. Um, and, and yeah, I guess that's maybe my take home from all of this is that at the heart of everything that we're trying to do, whether it be performance targets or outcomes, Ultimately, there's a human being at the centre of this, and just to, to remember to care for people.
1: Listen, that's fantastic, and and from both of you, a fantastic answer to to that question as as uh, just a summation of, of of why this pathway is in place and and why we're providing specialist care uh, in a patient centric way. So, listen, my thank you to both of you for this past hour. I really do appreciate your perspectives and opinions, uh, but I do do just extend thanks to you to you both. Thank you very much.
0: You're listening to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast on the Medics Academy Network.